After 25 years in the fashion industry, I've realized that fashion is not really about the clothes, it's about the people. I'm Laura Van Root Poole, and this is What We Wore. Throughout our eight seasons, we've listened to our guests to learn more about their journeys and crafts, but also lessons on leadership and becoming an entrepreneur. Here are the highlights from lessons learned in season eight and beyond. Let's start with season eight, where there were many powerful lessons. Elizabeth von der Goltz offered profound insights on her goals for female leadership in the industry while exploring her own leadership at Harvard Business School. How do you think female leadership has evolved in fashion over the last 20 years? Do you think it has? Because <laughs> I, I, when, I, when I found out you were in this program, I, I did text you. I did say, like, this industry, has it needs leadership. Please lead us. Please. We'll follow you, you know, yeah. because you you are the person that will will lead and will change, I think. I think you're the person that will do it. It's you know, I have, I've been really disappointed with the, 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 the roles females, women play in leadership and fashion. And it's, it's interesting being here because... Everyone is shocked when I tell them there's more female CEOs in finance than there are in fashion. And they wow. can't believe it because there's so many women who work in fashion. The U.S. probably has a few more than the Europe. When you look at all the biggest fashion brands and companies, they're all led by it's men true. that you know, went true. to business school, right? And mm. it, and worked in consulting. So it's, it's really interesting. But the tides are definitely turning. When I had my break and talked to a lot of, you know, the big, big search firms, they said to me, a lot of companies that they brought in these CEOs are, are not working. Their strategies are not working. And he's, they're like, yeah. the next tide is coming. And everyone knows it's about like bringing in leaders who, first of all, have as much EQ as IQ, as much, yeah. as much, as much instinct and knowledge of fashion than just finance. And I think it's starting to change, but we have to show the way. And the, the longer I've been here in school, it's sort of now something I think about of being a mission that like. Like we all have to be role models and really, really, you know, sh- you know, really pave the way for the women in, in this industry for the future. What do you hope your legacy within the industry will be? I had co-founded a nonprofit called Raise Fashion, where we re- mentor BIPOC designers. And I think yeah. we've now created a fellowship program, which is really about trying to help them sus- sustain their business for the long time. I think that's, again, so, you know, really mentoring kind of emerging new talent. And then this whole leadership part on and, and have it really hoping that we can be the role models to bring in more women into, into CEO positions, leadership positions, running businesses like yourself, entrepreneurs. I think that's 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 sort of where I want my legacy to go. I, right now, that's what I think, believe. Are you proud of the leader that you've become in spite of how you were groomed? <laughs> it's like you've, you've come out <laughs> better than they trained you. Yeah. You know, everyone learns in different ways, right? Some people become the person that trains them. I think the way I learned was a lot of things was what I don't want to be. And that really helped guide me. And then I took the best of the best leaders and the best bosses I had and kind of tried to blend them into one. I would say I am proud of the leader that I am, but I think it's important that you're you always are trying to grow and evolve and improve. And I think me even being here is part of that. Like you never, you never like a leader and boom, when that's it. Like you've done it. You've hit the pinnacle. I think you have to yeah. always be open to constantly changing. What would be an example of what you would see in the future generations of female leadership that would make you know that things are different and better beyond would, the number of CEOs? <laughs> I mean, it's not even that we're not, then we don't, then we're not even talking about it anymore. That is just not even a yeah. topic. Yeah. Right. It's like we don't need to talk about it because it just is. Yeah. 
maybe we talk about how few men leaders there are now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I love it. From Claudia Mata, we learned about the challenges of solo entrepreneurship and the courage to face the lonely side of business without a team. Did you ever expect to be an entrepreneur? I didn't, but but (laughs) I I, I do like it. But I will say the one thing that it's a little lonely. Yeah, Um, it's a lot lonely, actually. Yeah, (laughs) I would say I, I, I miss I miss having Oh, your team. I miss having teams. I miss having yeah. teams. I miss having almost the day where it's like you can feel irresponsible, you know? I miss <laughs> yeah. that day where you're like, eh, it's fine. Those you know? were the days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, it, what do you think it's taught you about yourself? I definitely realize my resilience. You know, I, I, I've always known it was there, but this has tested it on a whole other level of, of you know, showing up on those days that you – you don't even think you have an ounce left to give, but you know, it's, you've got, it's, it's like another baby. So it's, it's a less, it's a less important motherhood for me. And finally, from Nellie Kim's powerful season eight conversation, we found that sometimes entrepreneurship chooses you in the most unlikely moments. When did your mind start to drift towards your own, your own thing? Right. So I am an accidental entrepreneur. I don't, never <laughs> thought to myself, I really want to be an entrepreneur. But what had happened was I've been at, in the shoe world, let's see, though, three years at that point. And around that time, I'd actually gone through a, um, a, like a sad divorce. So I was trying to figure out what I, how to heal from it all, how to process it all. And mm-hmm. I was just sick of thinking of myself. So I actually signed up for a volunteer a missions trip to go to India, working with women and children who'd been rescued from trafficking. Mm. And so on that trip, which was life-changing for sure, I just felt so inspired by the women I met there. More importantly, when I met them, I realized actually we're exactly the same. There's nothing really separating us aside from the fact that we were born into different families and different countries. So I left that trip thinking, okay, my gift is not to be a social worker or a doctor, (laughs) but what if I could use what I know how to do in service of a greater good? So I sort of thought to myself, huh, maybe I'll, this idea of a business plan started formulating in my head. I was like, I think this could be a really interesting idea to just make a modern, comfortable comfort shoe brand, but that's cool and like not orthopedic right? and not, not lame. So I, I'd actually put together this business plan thinking that maybe one day I would pitch it to my company as another brand within their portfolio. Mm. So the the week I finished the business plan, that was the same week I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. So when I went back to work, all of a sudden, my shoes, so what people don't tell you this, I don't know if you had this experience, but chemotherapy often results in neuropathy in mm-hmm. feet and hands, which means that you have very sensitive or numb or tingling feet and hands. And for me, that meant that my feet got incredibly sensitive. And when I went back to work, I couldn't actually wear any of my Bergdorf Goodman shoes or my designer shoes. And I could pretty much only wear sneakers and Birkenstocks and Uggs. (laughs) And that was fine. But I also just (laughs) didn't really want to live like that for the rest of my life. So I, you know, I remembered that little business plan I'd thought of and I was like, okay, actually, someone needs to make this brand. And I guess that person's me because (laughs) I actually understand this now. 
Now let's take a look back at a few powerful lessons from seasons past. In season four, Mara Hoffman shows us daring leadership as she realized her business was no longer aligned with her belief system. Speaking of meaningful moments and energy and spirituality, I know that the birth of your son, afterwards you, you experienced a little bit of a reckoning in your life and in the fashion industry. Can you talk about that and sort of moving to be a more sustainable business and production model and sort of what, how that happened and what that meant? I was aware, I was in awareness that I was part of a really harmful industry years before I made the shift and within my own company. You know, I had friends like, speaking of which, like Pamela Love, who she had built her company. She built it later on, but she had built it with that ethos of sustainability front of mind before it was a conversation. Right. And so there were there were people around me who I, I knew existed that had been in that space. But when I started to really feel personal discomfort with my own contribution to it, I was already many years into my company. I was, when I made the shift, the company was 15 years old. Yeah, so right. I'd been feeling it for the years, a few years leading up to it when there was more awareness and more conversation around it. But I really hit my wall when we were 15 years in and my son was three. Uh -huh. And I was just in one of those big kind of hit the wall moments of change or die, you yeah. know? And I think we all experience those, whether it's like through the work you're doing or through personal aspects that you hit these like unmovable parts and you can't stay in your habitual space anymore and it's really really uncomfortable because it can be terrifying to think like how do I change everything I yeah. don't know how to do this but I went to my director of production who was on maternity leave and I sat on her couch and I just kind of let it go and cried and was like do we close the business because I can't let this be my legacy I can't let this be what I leave to my kid. And what is he going to do with all the stuff we're making? What's he going to yeah. do with it? Like how, like for what, you know, to have like my name stitched in the back of a piece of clothing. Mm -hmm. like where's the big win in that at the end of it all, we decided to start with the lowest hanging fruit. And it was, I mean, the first part was really analyzing and vetting our existing company and digging into all the parts. I know that Pamela visits you upstate. Did y'all always have your place upstate? No, no, no. That's, That's that happened. Yeah, that happened pretty close to when all this happened. Because no, I was that, just wondering if it takes maybe the space of sort of, and also just the, the being outside of it for a minute to reflect on it and actually see it. But maybe not. You, you were. I think. It. I think that that's definitely a way to touch base and to really kind of take assessment and inventory of your existence and like what you're contributing to is by slowing down and stepping out so that you have a moment to breathe and like see yeah. what you've created a hundred percent I didn't have that I've always really been in the grind yeah um, I'm a I am a worker bee deeply and so I've been someone I've like really worked my entire adult life very hard I didn't ever take that real break I had until this pandemic I hadn't 
left New York longer than maybe three weeks. So yeah, this has been a real, another big moment for it all. But that moment, I think it was the, just the building up and the consciousness of it, of when you have levels of awareness, like they don't go away. So once you see something, yeah, you don't unsee it. And I was gathering more and more information and like putting the parts together and realizing that this is not something I can really count on for the rest of my life. I can't be part of it unless it's something really different. And I would think that that really called on your leadership because I, I would imagine it was hard to get your team on board with that. It was hard to get some and it was easy to get others. I think that I can, I, I feel like I'm a great salesman when I need to be, <laughs> um, but because I feel really passionate about things. Yeah. And I think that that can be a magnetic quality in people where like when you are around someone who believes in something really deeply, mm-hmm. like it's easy to be um, enticed by that. It's a very attractive quality when someone has conviction and when they have, you know, so in a leadership position, like that's worked for me yeah. in a sense, because it isn't also like making something up. I really deeply believe it. And I know that it's in service to like something that everyone is really longing for, even if they can't find the words for it. Like we're all in longing to be more connected and to be in flow and to feel more love. Like we're all, whether or not we say that or we really know that about ourselves, we are. It's like part of the human deal. I think when people see someone pursuing a path towards that, whether they know it or not, they're more often attracted to that. Like, let's see where this goes. Like, this can't be that bad. And if I don't like it, I'll jump out, you know? So, yeah. So, and I had people in the very beginning of this transformation, it'll be six years now in January, I had people jump ship a hundred percent that were just like, eh, you know, this is uh, like, this is crazy. Our buyers aren't interested in this. Nobody's interested in this. I had accounts that weren't interested in it. I, my company went through a, a major contraction during that time. And it was a conscious one. It was one that I was like, understanding was necessary because I knew not everybody was gonna go with this shift. And also at that time we made a really big aesthetic shift. Yeah. So like we moved out of a whole brand language and moved into a new one. And so not only was it moving towards sustainability, the price point changed, the, the fabrics changed, the silhouettes changed. It, it had to match where I was as a human. In season six, Mary Celeste Bell of Blackberry Farm demonstrated the power of learning to lead in your own way, even in the face of great loss. I can't remember his exact words, but basically a few days later and everything's kind of a fog. He said, you know, Chris and I've talked and we would love for you to step in as proprietor. Oh my God. And, and there were so many parts of me that were overwhelmed. Like that means I need to figure out how to get my kids organized and I have to figure out all these things that I used to focus on. But at the same time, it forced me to get up, get organized, get dressed, put myself together, be a adult human being outside of laying in my bed and 
weeping over my husband and best friend dying. And I think the last thing I'll say is that because I was so in love with Blackberry, I mean, I'd first been there when I was 16 and then I moved there when I was 20. I had been there almost 20 years and it is not just a business. It's, it's our life. And I mean, it, and there are 500 people that work there. And I loved, I wanted to keep it going for them and yeah. for my kids. And that was always Sam's dream was to make sure that Blackberry continued on forever for our family. Yep. And that's why we moved there. We, that's why we drive 45 minutes to school because that is where our heart is. Having a reason to get up besides your kids, but also the kids, I think, Empty nesters who lose someone, it's a whole different ball game. And I, my heart just goes out to them. Yeah, it's lonely. How did you also reconcile with yourself that it was okay for it to be your own way? And because you were never going to be like Sam and he was never going to be like you. How did you know how to find that voice and how long did it take? Well, I can't remember the exact timing, but I think that Martha Stewart was finally coming to Blackberry. <laughs> We'd asked her about a million times. Right. And she was finally coming. I want to say it was within a month. And there oh was something God. else. <laughs> there was something else we did within a month. And I just kind of thought, you know what? Sam would have gotten up and welcomed everybody. And we, I joke because every time he got up to welcome everyone, he'd say, I'm Sam Bell. I'd love, I'm so happy to have you at Blackberry. This is my family's home. And sometimes when I was the wife sitting in the chair, I'm like, duh, everyone already <laughs> knows that. <laughs> but, um, but it really was endearing. And, yeah. and he was so humble and he really was kind of shy because of my love of Blackberry and because I loved Sam and wanted to continue what he was doing. I was like, okay, well, I'll do the welcome. And and it all just kind of fell into place because I could connect to Sam through these people or I could connect these people to Blackberry through their connection to Sam, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. And and so and I and I also just kind of thought, you know what? I'm I have a value that I'm gonna add to Blackberry that's different than Sam's value. Mm -hmm. And just one example is he had, before he passed away, I had been kind of tasked with, okay, you're going to be the bell representative on the design front. Like his mom had stepped down and we were working on the team and I was certainly not going to run the design team because I've never been to design school. And, but I was the one that was like, okay, this feels right for Blackberry. This let's do this. You know, I was mm -hmm. trying to help guide yeah. and Similarly, our retail program, I mean, Sam knew what he loved, but he didn't know much about retail. And when you shop enough, you learn a lot about retail. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You're good at it. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, and so, so there were parts and pieces of Blackberry that he didn't really love and he wasn't super passionate about that I had already kind of been tapping into. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know what, we, he's got our food and wine, food yeah. and beverage program nailed. Amen for that we've got a great team there. Now I'm going to focus on these things and I'm going to let Andy Chabot, who is our, now our director really run with that. And my father-in-law is obviously very experienced in the food and beverage. So, so I kind of just told myself that I didn't have to be Sam. I needed to be myself. 
Also in season six, Vanessa Barboni Hollick showed us that becoming an entrepreneur sometimes means leaving a different industry at the height of your career. I want to read a quote of yours to our listeners that feels really significant for so many reasons, but it says, I felt what I can only describe as a calling professionally for the first time in my life to be a part of the solution in this industry. Was it surprising that that was fashion? Yes, it was very. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was really surprising. It just, it had never occurred to me. I really, you know, I was, I was deeply in it in the, in finance and really committed to it, having, you know, put so much energy into building my credibility in that space. But I felt such a deep uh, sense of purpose in this work that I just, I, I probably should have second-guessed me. I truly knew one person <laughs> in the entire industry. And did it come completely from within or did you have supporters? Did you have, I mean, I, I always, when people ask me about starting my business when I was 24, I always say like the, one of the more important things is not to really share it with people because most people will say that's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> so true. <laughs> So, did, but did you have champions? I mean, did you have did you have mentors? Did you have people that really pushed you and supported you? I definitely built them over time. You know, I was really yeah. really lucky to get a few uh, wonderful introductions early on, and people just opened up their network and they opened up their you know experience and their hearts, and they really helped me make this happen. You know, because it takes. Uh, more than a village to to build these businesses, <laughs> to say the least. And particularly, you know, navigating the kind of access that you have to navigate to to build it. So I had a lot of support, but there were also, you know, to your point about being quiet about it, I was also over time careful because I think that the energy that you surround yourself with when you're bringing something to life is so important. And I knew that there were just some people who weren't going to believe it until they saw it. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, We'll have dinner in 18 months. And most profoundly in season seven, Marie Lichtenberg revealed that sometimes being an entrepreneur and pursuing a dream can save you. No, it was worth, was even worth because I I have, I, I, I have, a very difficult uh, I have difficult pregnancies okay because I have I do like very 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 severe uh, postpartum depressions both times for the first one a bit lighter for the first one because I think because I was working right and the second one for Jack for my son like I, I think I, I, I almost died how did you know that you had it? Because I think that a lot of women don't even know that they're in it. I think I couldn't even stand on my legs anymore. Oh. I think oh. it was really, it was, it was that bad. And I, I'm sorry, it's not a happy um, topic, but I, but I wanted to die. Oh. And this is something like to, to, to give birth and to, and at, at the same time, just want to die. It's really, really crazy. And so what did you do? How did you ask for help? I, I think I've been lucky enough to have my husband on my side, by my side. He, underst- he, he understood like very quickly what was happening. And, um, and what happened that, you know what, medication right away, help like mother, like nannies, like whatever you can yeah. get, but some Support. help. 
Yeah. And and the best support I had and the best gift I had is that my my uh, husband came one night and I was like completely I was I was really sick and he came back from his office with a a ticket a plane ticket from uh, for India huh. and he told me okay I set up everything your mother is coming. Uh, the nanny is coming. I want to keep the babies with me. You are going to India and you're going to do your job and you're going to make this jewelry line possible and you go now. I don't want to, I, I, I don't want to see you anymore like this. And how old were the babies, Marie? I think it was three weeks. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. And so you, and so did you agree? I mean, did you say, did you fight him? What did you do? Um, I didn't, no, 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 because uh, I saw in his, in his eyes that it was an emergency. Yeah. And he told me something like, I don't want you to come back as you are right now. I want, I want my, 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 I want my wife to be back. Yeah. So whatever you do, take your time. I don't give a shit. Yeah. Do whatever you have to do and you come back. So that's what I did. And did you talk to your mom and your mother went with you? That's so supportive. Like, go. go. Oh. We don't want to see you. I've been so lucky. She could have packed my own uh, suitcase. <laughs> like, oh. go. But I was so sad. I was so depressed. And you know what happened also is that I sent few sketches from the collection when I when I was pregnant. I sent few uh, sketches to India, but I was I was sick during the the pregnancy, so I couldn't fly. Right, I couldn't fly. So things were a bit ready, not completely yeah. ready, but the idea yeah. was was already here. You had your workroom and everything. You knew where you wanted them to be made and all of that in Jaipur, I guess. No, I was in Mumbai. And oh, Mumbai because of the I, gold. Yeah. Yeah. I had no clue, but whatever. <laughs> I haven't. I bet. You know what? That's the story of this. Of this honey. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> do it. Whatever. We'll see. We will manage. We will do whatever we can. And, uh, and you know, the, the French. <laughs> yes. I don't know. I don't know. And do you remember the flight? I mean, do you remember flying? Do you remember landing? How did you feel in that process? Till now, I could uh, remember reading this. I could, I could cry again. Yeah, I could cry. I mean, it's because uh, it's, 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 it's honestly, it's the turning point of my life. And did you know that at the time, Marie? Could you feel that this was the turning point? That this is gonna, this is gonna be the new direction and the happiness and. I think that when I hold the first piece in my hand, you know, it's like this, it stays. You don't know why something is working, not working. Like I felt something very particular. And I don't know, maybe because I was waiting for, for this like since such a long time. Because I'm sorry, but 10 years ago, I designed a, I designed a collection. And as you know, Doing jewelry is super, super expensive. And I was super posh at this time. And I was like designing like super expensive pieces that I couldn't do. <laughs> so I never did. I never did it. But so it was to me, 
doing jewelry was an ultimate, an ultimate, it was not even a goal, it was a dream. And sometimes you don't want to reach your dream, you know, you just want yeah. to, to be dreamy and whatever. <laughs> so I was, I was super scared. Yeah. I was so scared. I remember being in the plane, like so fucking scared. Yeah. Because I knew, you know, sometimes I don't know how to say this in French and in, in English, but in in French, you say you say that when you are close to your goals, to yeah. your inner self, there's kind of a you are frightened. And more you're close, more you have resistance to go because you don't want to be happy. You don't yeah. want to. It's too much. It's, it's frightening to, to get what it's, you want because it, exactly. it may not be what you really want. <laughs> exactly. And I was like dying inside. But now I can, I think I'm looking for this sensation. Yeah. I want to be scared because I, I think that when I'm, when I'm feeling scared, means that I'm on the good path. And how long were you in India, Marie? I think two weeks. Okay. And when you came back, did you feel a difference? But what happened is that I I came back with 40 pieces. Huh. And, and I don't know what happened. I posted on Instagram and I sold the 40 pieces in 48 hours. <laughs> So I felt you were like okay, very much better. Like. <laughs> Everybody felt better. It's hard to believe we've had eight seasons of inspiring conversations. I hope you'll join us for more in season nine. What we wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song "Someone So Enchanting" was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. Queen City Podcast Network.com.